Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Breaking Down Mental Health, with myself, nurse practitioner, Dr. Christina Swiner, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Heidi Burns, and social worker, Saima Khan. We are joined today by Dr. Michelle Monroe Kramer and Professor Bridget Carr to focus on the basics of human trafficking. Dr. Michelle Monroe Kramer is an assistant professor, the Suzanne Bellinger Feetham Professor of Nursing and the Director of Global Programs at the University of Michigan School of Nursing. She's a certified family nurse practitioner and certified nurse midwife and practices per diem at the Washtenaw County Health Department. Her program of research focuses on gender-based violence prevention and response, primarily among college-aged youth within domestic and international contexts. As part of the inaugural Johnson & Johnson Nurse Innovation Fellowship, she is interested in leveraging nurses' creativity to develop innovative solutions to complex health and human rights issues, such as intimate partner violence, sexual violence, and human trafficking. Her research projects approach these topics using a trauma-informed and patient-centered lens. She uses mixed methods and participatory action research to understand the experiences of vulnerable populations in order to inform intervention development. Her global health fieldwork has included Ethiopia, Ghana, Liberia, and Zambia. Professor Bridget Carr founded and directs the University of Michigan Law School's Human Trafficking Clinic, the first clinical law program solely devoted to addressing this issue comprehensively. Since 2009, Professor Carr and her students have provided free legal services to survivors of human trafficking. They support the wide-ranging needs of men, women, and children, both foreign nationals and U.S. citizens, who have been victimized by a range of trafficking crimes. Using the U of M clinic as a model, Professor Carr is working with university partners around the world to develop similar programs to combat human trafficking and train law students, and has helped establish university law clinics in Mexico and Brazil to broaden the network of legal experts who can address the issues of compelled service that transcend international borders. She is the lead author of the first casebook on human trafficking law and policy, which examines a cross-section of criminal justice, civil and human rights, immigration, and international law that frames these issues. Professor Carr regularly provides human trafficking training to law enforcement, government officials, and healthcare providers, as well as consultations to state, national, and international authorities on the issues of human trafficking. None of the speakers here today have any conflicts of interest or financial disclosures. Thank you to both of our speakers for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Dr. Monroe Kramer, can you talk a little bit about what human trafficking is and what the different types of trafficking are? Sure. So in the most simple terms, human trafficking is compelled service. Um, So essentially, it's fueled by supply and a demand. So there's a demand for cheap labor, whether it be in a nail salon, creating clothing, or for commercial sex. And traffickers basically uh, exploit individuals to create that human labor uh, to fill the supply gap. The main types of human trafficking um, that we focus on are labor trafficking and sex trafficking, although there are other forms recognized like organ trafficking and forced marriage. But what we primarily see in the United States would be labor, labor trafficking and sex trafficking. Yes, I think, you know, that's a lot of terminology. And we'll probably say more in our discussions. You'll hear the phrases uh, modern slavery, forced labor, exploited labor. It's really just all talking about people with power uh, taking advantage of someone with a vulnerability in order to commercially profit. Thanks for that broad definition and sort of sort of condensing it down for us so that we can kind of understand what we're really talking about today. Because I think 
especially if you're within healthcare, you've been hearing a lot of about human trafficking. And uh, sometimes I think we don't think about how broad it really is. I think it's so broad and it's also so pedestrian. Meaning when I hear people talk about human trafficking and they don't know what I do, it's like they're talking about a unicorn. I mean, I I really think that they're talking about unicorns. That It's magical, that it's exotic, that it's rare, that you're almost never going to see it. Or when it presents itself, it's going to present itself in a way that you've never seen anything like it before. It's really a horse. Like it's super pedestrian. We've seen it lots of times. We probably drive or walk by it and don't even think twice about it. And I think when we talk about trafficking as if it's a unicorn, we are training people to look for something that doesn't exist because the reality is our society is built on the pursuit of cheap goods and labor. And so, of course, we're going to see the folks who provide those cheap goods and labor all around us. Which I think puts a good spotlight on the fact that it's actually commonplace. It's something that you probably would see a lot potentially in an emergency department and why some of the trainings and awareness around it is actually really important. I mean, I think it's in any part of healthcare, not just the emergency department. And that's actually probably one of the myths we perpetuate is that um, in order to have individuals that can perform labor, you want them healthy. So you're going to take care of any of their healthcare needs, whether it be problems with their teeth, um, you know, reproductive problems, mental health problems, or actual physical problems. And so, I mean, I think in healthcare, we see many individuals who have experienced different forms of interpersonal violence, and we don't think of that as un common. And this is just another form of interpersonal violence that could present itself. I think the other thing we don't want to forget about is it's definitely the folks that are being taken care of in the healthcare setting, but it also could be the folks that we work with, whether it's uh, a nurse on the you know that you're working with or um, someone who is cleaning the room that you have examined someone in. Uh, we know of cases involving uh, cleaning people and nurses. And so I just think we can't forget that it's not just about the folks that healthcare providers are serving, but it's also potentially anyone in the healthcare provision ecosystem. I think that's consistent, again, with any form of interpersonal violence, right? We like to think about someone else experiencing intimate partner violence or sexual assault, but it is really is surrounding us all the time. So kind of on that note, thinking about the fact that it, it probably is a bit ubiquitous, it's around us, um, what are some of the common trends that we might actually see with human trafficking day to day? I think when people ask that question, it's a common question that I get. They want a checklist. They want the top five indicators, or they want uh, one question they can ask that can help screen. We just don't have any of that, and some of that is really the fault of the anti-trafficking, you know, movement. Uh, there, it, there are no evidence-based indicators for how to know if human trafficking exists. There are no uh, validated individual screening questions. There are screening tools uh, for healthcare settings, but they are impossible to implement. Uh, I think one of them is like 16 pages long. Uh, it just it, it's it's absolutely not practical. Um, you know, I do intakes quite often in the human trafficking clinic at Michigan Law School, we don't use a 16-page intake form. So I really want people to think about, especially healthcare providers, think about when you're in an exam room or you're with someone and you sort of get that feeling in your gut that's like, something's off here. 
And perhaps historically you might run through, is it IPV? Is it sexual assault? Is it child abuse? Or, you know, whatever sort of the the labels are that you already have in your toolbox. I just want you to add human trafficking into that toolbox. I want you to think about that if the thing in front of you doesn't fit the frame that you're used to, if you can't identify sort of like someone who's in their family who's harming them, or it's not a child parent narrative, but it's some narrative where you're seeing exploitation, it might be human trafficking. This person's vulnerability might be take, might be used against them for the person to profit. And when I talk to healthcare providers after I train them all the time, folks say, that's happened to me. I've had that uh-oh feeling and it just didn't fit the labels I knew to use. So I, I didn't know what to do with it. And so I think the important thing is to say, this is not unlike things you already know. So you already know how to handle most of this. Uh, It's get in contact with the social workers on your team, reach out, know what the plan is if someone comes into your setting to address these issues, and that you don't have to know the ins and outs of the definition to, to be a help to someone you might encounter. I think the other piece is expanding the idea of who your team is. Um, so we think a lot about, um, you know, working with social workers for for different types of um, concerns related to trauma or mental health. But, I mean, your team is also the individual at registration who's checking in a patient and recognizes that someone's answering for them and, you know, the questions, the identification, or a number of other things. Um, so I think it could be the person cleaning up the room that notices of something. So really expanding this idea of the team and what others might be seeing too. Um, I've had a a colleague who had this kind of uh uh-oh gut feeling something was off and just really couldn't put their finger on it. And then later when consulting with another member of the team, they had gathered completely different information. And when put together, they're pretty sure that that human trafficking, you know, could have been happening. And so I think that's the other piece. Whenever you have that feeling, who can you talk to? Who can you share with and see if they've learned anything else um, that you might be able to put together to understand the situation and what the patient is going through in a little more detail? I just want to add one more thing, too. Perhaps all that you identify is child abuse or IPV or sexual assault. Many human trafficking cases have all of those elements as well. I worry sometimes in this space that we act as if there's something magical that will happen if you use the human trafficking label. It's not like resources rain down from the sky if we've labeled it human trafficking. And so I I would be elated if all of my, let's just say, sex trafficking clients were actually labeled as sexual abuse victims. I'd be elated for a variety of reasons, but uh, I'll be elated if they were identified that way because it means their pain and harm was seen. I don't need folks to know every single legal definition that can apply to my clients. I just need them to be seen as someone in need of help. I would add one more thing, Bridget, on top of that. I mean, so, you know, you said you'd be elated if your um, clients were labeled as sexual abuse victims. And I think there's a lot of we have a lot of implicit bias. We make a lot of assumptions about people. And so when we're presented with information like a number of sexually transmitted infections or sex partners, instead of questioning why that might be, we sometimes make assumptions about a person um, and don't go to, is there abuse? Is there something happening to that person? Um, as opposed to, to kind of wanting to label them, which we do a lot in healthcare. Do you think you could speak a little bit more about that implicit bias? Like what are we seeing uh, when somebody is labeled maybe as trafficking versus abused? I mean, I think there's a lot of myths and misconceptions about human trafficking. And as Bridget said, we try to put this picture in our, or like checkbox in our head, right? Um, and so we we might be looking for someone that has um, a tattoo with a name or a barcode, right? Which is completely false. 
there are many individuals around the world with tattoos. It has nothing to do with human trafficking. Whereas when we're thinking about sexual assault or abuse, I think the media has really helped to push this narrative of, um, you know, this this white girl that has been kind of um, a stranger taken away by a stranger. And we we I think we create these misconceptions because we won't, don't want to believe it can happen to us or to our friends when really any type of violence, including human trafficking, can happen to anyone around us. Um, so again, not thinking about how someone looks, how they're presenting, really thinking about what happened to them and what might have preceded that. You know, what what could be what could we be missing from the story that they haven't shared or maybe are a little unwilling to share because we haven't est- established like a safe, trusting space to do that yet. I think especially in the cases involving sex trafficking. And let's be very clear, sexual abuse can happen in labor trafficking as well. But in in the sex trafficking cases, I don't know what happens to folks thinking, but there's something about money on the nightstand that uh, changes where people think the power lies. So I can tell a narrative of a 16-year-old girl um, engaged in sex with a 50-year-old man, and if somehow money is exchanged, that girl is somehow super powerful. She has all this power, and she should be charged criminally. Now, we may not think that in this room, but that narrative exists. But then if I told that same story, but there was no money. And that 50-year-old man was engaged in sexual relations with a 16-year-old girl. People might have a very different reaction. And so I often say, please explain to me how $20 on the nightstand changes the inherent power dynamics in what I've just described. And it doesn't, but for some reason in our culture, it does. And so I think that's one of the, you know, what I often say to people is, if you are working on a case involving commercial sex, so a case involving sex trafficking, Ask yourself if you are comfortable with your reaction if no money was involved. Try to take that commercial aspect of those sexual acts off the table. And are you comfortable with what you're choosing to do? Thank you both so much for those reflections. I I think it's really important to question our our own implicit biases, the judgments that we make in moments, um, you know, and that financial component, it suddenly does add some kind of control in that situation that this person maybe is more doing something more so voluntarily because now they're being compensated in some capacity. And clearly, you know, there's still the significant lack of control. There's a power dynamic that we need to be aware of and we need to ensure we're addressing. You know, I think shifting a little bit, I, I know it, there's not kind of necessarily like a um, a template for kind of who's trafficked or kind of, you know, um, easy to say, like, look for someone that's this age range, this demographic, you know, this racial um, or ethnic identity. But are there specific groups that are more likely to be trafficked or that are vulnerable to be trafficked? So again, I would just reinforce that anybody can experience human trafficking. I do think that traffickers exploit vulnerabilities, whether or not they're visual vulnerabilities that we might see is, is kind of a different story. And so, um, you know, that could be somebody who's looking for an education and doesn't have a means to achieve that. Um, so Bridget and I coincidentally met in Ethiopia. And when we were doing some work exploring um, human trafficking in Ethiopia, um, that was what we were seeing in the northern part of the country, right? There were limited economic and educational opportunities. And so traffickers were preying on that. But I think that looks differently based on kind of the region or the individual. Um, I mean, we hear a lot that, you know, runaway youth or, or homeless youth are particularly at risk. And they might be at risk because they might trust people who are exploiting those vulnerabilities. But again, anybody can can be at risk. 
I think you really have to look at power dynamics. And I mean, I, I think there is one thing that's that is a, a quick rule of thumb. The majority of labor trafficking victims are not U.S. citizens. You know, we have only represented one U.S. citizen who's a labor trafficking victim. Sex trafficking victims have been both U.S. citizens and foreign nationals. We've represented men, women, and children. So, uh, but I think when we talk about vulnerability, we often sometimes think at first of poverty, foster care, lack of education, uh, foreign national status. But I also want us to think a little bit broader. Let's think about um, foreign national students here on their PhD. If you're here on your PhD, your advisor, your faculty member has tremendous power and control over you. We have represented people who have been trafficked by their PhD advisor. We have represented people in healthcare who are here on visas because your employer has so much power over you who have been trafficked. We have represented athletes who have been trafficked because when you are an elite athlete, the, the number of avenues available to you to achieve your goals are very narrow. I mean, let's all think of the Larry Nasser case, right? If you want to be an Olympic athlete, you can't take your hometown volleyball coach with you. You have to use the the doctors, the coaches, the facilities that the U.S. Olympic Commission requires you to do so. So the, we don't think about those athletes as being vulnerable, but they actually are. And so I want us to make sure we have a really broad frame for what vulnerability looks like, because I do worry a bit that then we start to say, well, if they're not poor and they're not brown and they, and, you know, and they don't and they speak English, they can't be trafficked. And that's just not the case. Unfortunately, um, people who are willing to profit off of other people's vulnerabilities are all around us in society. Bridget, I feel like the um, you, I know you've done some work online too, and just uh, identifying victims and kind of preying on individuals online, and how that space completely takes away identity, right, and utilizes um, the online venue more as the means to exploit individuals, regardless of who they are, what they do, or what vulnerability they have. Yes, I mean, I think one of the myths around trafficking is that it's strangers who traffic us. Right, that it's a white van in a Target parking lot that grabs people, or there's hidden codes based on stickers on bumpers, or you know, if only. Like, I mean, my God, how I wish that's what trafficking was like. Because you know what? If trafficking was white vans snatching middle class girls from Target parking lots, one, it would be all over the news, all the news, all the types of news. Two, there would be so much surveillance video available for it. It would be Target's surveillance video. It would be all the people with iPhones in the parking lot. Like, we would have so much evidence, right? But it's not strangers who traffic people. It's people that you know, love, and trust. We actually surveyed all the cases that we've ever done in the human trafficking clinic. 98% of our cases, our clients were trafficked by someone they knew, loved, and trusted. 98%. We, I, I think in all the cases I've ever done and consulted on and been talked to about, there's only one case involving someone who was physically kidnapped. And it wasn't – the person was not kidnapped in the United States. It was in a foreign, in a foreign country. And so – I think that's the myth, right, that the danger is the person that we don't know and not at all, right? The, the danger is the person you know who's willing to take advantage of you for money. And the danger, I think, for all of us is that we're willing to ignore folks' vulnerability because we're happy with low prices. Well, and the people that know you know your vulnerabilities the best, right? Yes. <laughs> so when we talk about vulnerabilities being so broad, who knows our weaknesses the most? It's the people that really – Or the people we trust online who we think are one right. thing and they're something else. I mean, 
I so I'm a I'm a mom. I have three young kids, and other parents will say to me, "How are you keeping your kids safe from trafficking? Aren't you worried they're going to be snatched?" Well, one, I'm not worried they're going to be snatched because that's we've established that is not a thing. But two, I actually say, like, I'm actually more worried that you all are talking about stranger danger. I'm more worried that you're not willing to talk to kids about what their body parts actually are and you're naming them these wackadoo things. Like, let's say the words of what they are. And so, like, I'm more worried that we aren't empowering our kids to say, you know, this person I love, grandpa touched me in my, like, he touched my vagina, right? Like, I want my kids to be able to say, grandpa touched my penis or grandpa touched my vagina. Like, that, like, empowering your children to say, This person who cares about me hurt me. And letting your kids know that as a parent, you can handle even how big or how hard that sentence is, that's fighting trafficking. (laughs) That's, you know, that's because the person who's going to try to prey on your kid online then is going to have no place for that prey to land. I think we've actually encountered a lot of that sort of within the inpatient child psych setting where we have family meetings with people and, you know, they don't realize the extent of the online presence of their child and they end up actually having a lot of contacts, you know, um, a lot of grooming and things that are occurring online sort of under their parents' nose, you know, and and we talk a lot about trying to be more connected and communicate more with your child, sort of, you know, be a partner in their online use and, yes. and try to you know, give them, instill some of that uh, knowledge about what to look for. Um, because unfortunately, we we do see that very commonly. That I wish we wouldn't call it grooming, though. And it, you weren't yeah. wrong to call it that, because that is what it's called. But I even think grooming takes it into this, like, fantastical, like, it's super evil. It's super, I mean, it is evil. Like, the objective is evil. Super nefarious. And it's like, it's got all these tentacles. Like, I just, like, have this visual image in my mind of what grooming looks like. When grooming's really like, hey, how was school today? Yeah. Like, it's building a relationship. Sometimes it's so simple. It's just, oh, I've been talking to this person for two years online. They're my friends. It's building a relationship. And if we we talked about it as pay attention to who your your kids or who vulnerable people are building relationships with, then it's a completely different ballgame. But when we say grooming... I just think it, it becomes the shadow thing that folks think, well, that's not those aren't the places my kids go online or that wouldn't happen to my kids because they know good people. And it's just it's building relationships. I, I, I try to say that now instead of grooming. And I think so often teenagers want someone that they can trust and understands them. And, and those are the types of things that, you know, I think these individuals utilize. And I think when we think of grooming, right, it's always this older person. It's, you know, really like, you know, this grandfather, this older, but it, it may even be someone that's maybe only several years older than them. But again, there's this power dynamic, there's control that's being utilized in that setting. And so I think really taking a step back and acknowledging that these behaviors occur um, in a multitude of settings and different ways. And it's, again, that relationship and that trust and support that that child is looking for. Yeah, we see a lot of kids who, you know, they don't feel connected to their family or their friends that they have at school. And, you know, their online relationships are everything to them. And, you know, sometimes those are truly, you know, good friends that they make and sometimes they're not. Um, but, you know, just trying to educate the parents to be involved at least and, and try to, you know, make sure they're aware of what's going on under their nose. Yeah. I mean, like when I read what traffickers think, or the, you know, about how to target um, their next victim, they talk about the kid who's lonely, labor or sex trafficking, the kid who wants a connection or the adult. Right. And so 
when you can walk through the world, if you will, with sort of the, eye, the, the eyes of a trafficker, and, you know, I think this even sometimes when I walk on campus here, especially with young girls who look like, you know, they're trying not to take up space or they look so like, and I want to be like, take up space, right? Like, <laughs> meet people, connect, talk, because, gosh, traffickers don't even want to mess with the hard targets, meaning the kids who are going to make a big fuss, the kids who are, you know, and so there's just so many easy targets out there that it's not hard for traffickers to find people who they don't have to snatch, who will, who will quote unquote, willingly get in the car with them. I think the other piece beyond the language um, is, I mean, the language to talk about different forms of violence. We always like think if we talk about it, it's going to happen or, you know, that it's it's a sensitive topic and we shouldn't be talking to our kids about it. But then they don't have the language to describe, um, you know, they, they get these complex definitions. They don't really understand what's happening. Um, and so they can't even tell you what's happening to them or recognize that something, you know, it's that gut feeling for them too, right? If they have someone who they're just bonding with online and they, you know, are are playing a game and they're like sharing what they like and don't like, that's very different than being able to recognize somebody constantly questioning them, right? Who's your family? What's going on with you? What's this? What's that? I mean, I just, I think we, I think we don't empower our children a lot because we think we're protecting them from these words or these terminologies or these bad things that can happen in the world, but they can happen to anybody and we're doing more of a disservice by not talking about it. And there are ways to talk about it that aren't terrorizing. You know, I mean, in my family, one of our big, big messages is we don't keep secrets, but we can't have surprises, right? So we can have a surprise gift for someone, but if any adult asks you to keep a secret, like that's that's a big sign that you need to talk to mom or dad uh, or someone that, you know, someone else if you're not comfortable with mom or dad. The other thing we talk about a lot is, you know what? Adults can ask other adults for help, right? If it's if – it's, and sometimes my kids throw that back about unloading the dishwasher. But, you know, <laughs> but we, we talk about it in the context of – you know, another adult does not need you to help them to do their job. Like that, that's, and and so that's not using phrases like sexual assault and, and all of that stuff, but it's just right away talking about like there are realms that are for adults and there are realms for kids. And and let's talk about open lines of communication with us and, and sort of how people might try to step into those spaces where parents should be or, you know, legal guardians. I think the other thing that we do is we don't shy away from hard topics, but we try to talk about them in ways that are kid appropriate. So um, it's not a secret to anyone. There's been a significant amount of sexual harassment and sexual abuse on campus at Michigan. And my kids talk about that as butt touching. Like I'll come home and I'll be upset about something and my eldest will be like, oh, was there another butt toucher? And so like for some reason, that's how they as, uh, you know, as like I think he was eight when he started using that as an eight-year-old, he conceptualized it, right? It's not appropriate for adults to touch other people's butts at work. And so, and then I talk about it, and yet there is, and this is how it wasn't okay, and and then he'll say like, why didn't anyone speak up? And we talk about that. We talk about how uncomfortable it can be to speak up. So, you know, I think <laughs> some people laugh when my kids like, is it butt touching again? Um, but it's a way that he can have those conversations, and uh, and he can access it without knowing all of the details. I mean, there's so many things you can do early, like consent, right? I mean, consent, you don't have to hug grandma if you don't want to, right? Um, And so just understanding the choice. And then if you're uncomfortable, you have the ability to say no and talk to an adult about it. And the body parts, I mean, you can do that right away instead of creating these kind of um, funky, what did you say, wackadoo names (laughs) that are then difficult for others to recognize what's going on as well. 
And I mean, I think the other thing is like the news, right? I mean, the news lately, if it accidentally is on, I have a four-year-old and she's like, what's that? What's going on? And there, I mean, so there's so many things that you can kind of equate, right? So Black Lives Matter. We went to a march and we tried to talk about what that means. And I mean, Sesame Street did an amazing kind of special on that. There's a lot of ways to break down these hard topics to kids. And I think the media is trying to do a better job of that as well, um, that we, we can't just keep ignoring it and saying, oh, you'll learn about that when you're an adult because by then it's too late. I think the other big one is learn about how your kids' daycare and school are talking about these issues. So I actually asked to see like all these trainings and one of the big changes I requested for my kids' school was all the examples of like when you tell a teacher involved another child. I said, you need some examples in there of bad behavior on the parts of school administrators and teachers. Those kids have to know that if an adult makes a mistake or does something wrong, that they can go to another adult at the school. And it had never occurred to them that every single example was about telling, you know, telling on another child and never on an adult. It's like a subtle shift, but it's it really opens up, you know, what kids learn that they can do, you know, to, to get help. And I think just reflecting that oftentimes if you're not having those conversations, at some point your child is going to have that conversation outside of the home. And so having that yourself and, and identifying the ways that as a family you'd like to talk about it is probably easier and better than, you know, going to the Internet or other friends or other, you know, settings where maybe then they're victimized or they're, you know, put in a vulnerable situation. For sure. I mean, I think the other age group we don't always think about is like the over 18, right? Like the the college age, the 18 to 24. And so they're adults, um, but they're still learning a lot about this. And they're probably starting to learn like how they will educate their family and what they're going to do for their future families. And so I think there's a lot of potential there. And just having these conversations, getting them involved with organizations. We've had some um, students who have volunteered with the Washington Area Council for Children and have talked to kids about consent and like what that looks like. And at first they were, they did it a little begrudgingly, but like afterwards they realized, wow, like this is so powerful. I learned things like I could take this with me the rest of my life um, for any child I interact with. And I, I think we sometimes like think it's too late for that age group to have some of those conversations. And I, I think they're a really important age group as well. So we've talked a lot about the sort of parent-child interaction that you can have around human trafficking, um, but sort of circling back to providers and thinking about the audience um, that we're sort of reaching out to in in this podcast, what are some things that you might recommend or um, think that providers should be thinking of or potentially asking? So I think, you know, I've seen all the indicators. I've (laughs) looked at where they've come from. But I think one of the most important things is to – in some ways, think like a trafficker a bit and then try to disrupt that script. So I think like, how can we disrupt the script? So for example, one of the indicators that um, healthcare providers are often trained on are, does your client not know their address? Well, every single one of my clients uh, has an address to provide to a healthcare provider because a trafficker knows a healthcare provider or multiple people in the healthcare provision setting are going to say, what's your address? So they are going to give you an address. My three-year-old could give you an address, right? We train people to answer that question. What many of my clients could not do was describe how to get to where they sleep at night, right? It's a very subtle shift in that question, but it's disrupting the script of what traffickers expect they're going to be asked. So, I, you know, I often try to say, if you just do the rote thing, what's your address? Or another one is... Um, 
do your do do your patients not have uh, control of their money? Well, m- most of my clients would say they had control of their money. But then if I said to them, if you needed to get $100 right now, could you t- describe to me how you'd have to do it? Many of them would say, well, I'd have to go to so-and-so and ask them because they hold their, my money to keep me safe. Right. That's it's it's just it's flipping that script a bit uh, because some of those well-worn um, tips for indicators that we give folks are just so easy for traffickers to make sure their victims have answers to. I think the other thing I would add on, Bridget, is the to me, the goal is not to get a disclosure. The goal is to establish yourself as a safe place to to come back to if someone needs support for healthcare, to to get out of a trafficking situation or just needs resources. And I think that goes with any age group um, that regardless of the questions that we ask or kind of how we ask them, that that's not the end goal. The end goal isn't to get a good disclosure because there's a lot to do after that as well. It's really to create the safe space for patients and their families to come back to. And I think the other thing I would add is we've been talking a lot about families, and I don't want to put blame on families or others that, again, trafficking is something that that happens to to people, and it's not their fault. So thinking about trauma-informed care, it's what happened. It's not what did you allow to happen or what's wrong with you, right? Um, and that goes, again, for the patient, their family, whoever's involved. And so these conversations we've been having about language and talking to, to children early um, about what might be happening in the world, I think those are important tools, but it's it's nobody's fault, right, if trafficking still happens because, unfortunately, it, it, well, it, is it a does trafficker's still fault. happen. It is a right. trafficker's and, fault. And, 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 and that is the person we <laughs> tend to think least about the actions, thoughts, and choices of, so... I really like how you um, kind of framed that. And we've talked in previous episodes about trauma-informed care as well. So kind of looking at these individuals through that lens and how we can support them in these moments and how we can support their family or whoever else is in the situation is really important. So we've talked about a lot of different things and aspects of human trafficking today, but do either of you have any further thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience? I think my biggest takeaway that I hope folks hear today is that you already know how to do this. You may not have used this label, but you've already seen these folks in your settings, and maybe you identified them as a victim of something else, or maybe you didn't at all. And hopefully next time you might, or most importantly, as Michelle said, you made them feel welcome and safe. And so uh, this is not new. This is not new. And so just know that um, we all get it wrong, myself included, uh, and we all hope to like do better the next time. And I guess I would say don't be swayed by the some of the myths and misperceptions. I think as healthcare providers, we are taught and we really like to have good indicators and a checklist because that make things a little bit easier. Um, but that's not the case with human trafficking. And so I just want us to be careful of kind of believing everything we read. Uh, Michigan is not the number two hotspot for human trafficking. There's no data to support that, you know. But but I think we get these ideas in our head and then we run with it. Um, so just checking your own biases, questioning things that you read about trafficking to ensure you have kind of accurate information, just like you would with any other type of healthcare problem. 
Well, thank you both for joining us today. I think you answered a lot of questions of our audience. I know I learned a lot today. We truly appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you to everybody who tuned in this week. Nurses, social workers, and physicians can claim CMEs and CEs at uofmhealth.org slash breaking down mental health. You're able to do this anytime within three years of the initial air date, and we hope you will join us next time.